Hello and welcome to Points of Information, the podcast by the Debaters Association of Victoria, where we discuss all aspects of our school's competition. With another episode, we are going to be discussing some of the recent topics, what we thought was good about them, what we thought of could have been improved on. And of course, with the move into round three, we are going to, of course, be talking about some of the secret topics that we have heard as adjudicators in the last few months. But before we launch into a post-mortem of some of those topics, let me first introduce the other adjudicators I have gathered here today to discuss them. Feels a bit like a battle of the vice presidents this episode. We have got, first of all, Joel Cripps. Hello, I'm Joel. I'm the vice president adjudication and training. And if you've been listening for a while, you might recognise the voice of our Vice President of Schools. Hey everyone, I'm Michael and I am the Vice President of Schools this year. With round two now over, we I think it's time we should look at some of the topics, what we thought was done well, what we thought wasn't, do a bit of a post-mortem on them, the ways that different students approached the topics in their own different ways within their teams. So starting from the top, let's look at the round two A-grade topic that we regret the rise of cancel culture. This was an interesting one because from my point of view, I never saw the same debate twice. With other topics, I don't, you know, that cats are better than dogs, you always hear something about preference and something about, you know, free to choose and something about the mess they make. And every debate sounds sort of similar. In this one, they were all very different. And it really came down to the differences being created by how each different affirmative team defined what cancel culture was or wasn't or what were the limits. And the two aspects of this were, one, when is it cancel culture and when is it just something else? Does this count as cancel culture or does this count as call-out culture was something one of the other teams went with? And then the other part of that was the affirmative team knowing the difference between a normative and an empirical debate topic. I did see as well a couple of creative definitions of um, when something was cancel culture and when something wasn't cancel culture. For some teams, there was a particular line where at some point they would say it was cancel culture up to this specific point where it stopped being good. And now it doesn't help our case, so we are saying it is not cancel culture. And that was a very frustrating way to see you work with the case because we set these topics because we want you to go for them. We want you to fully embrace whatever side we've given you. We don't think that what you're saying is your personal experience as Joel, as Michael, as whoever, right? We think you're speaking as an imaginary first affirmative, someone who agrees with this topic. And so you kind of have to own all of the good things and all of the bad things that come on with your topic. We've talked a couple of times on the podcast about one of my favorite concepts, which is taking a hard line. That means fully embracing what the topic is. And I wanted to see a few more teams, except that There were ugly bits on our side, but we still think that overall this does more um, or good. Or on the other side saying, you know, we think there are some good things occasionally, but we think actually overall it does more harm. We wanted to see you embracing both the good and the bad of cancel culture, whatever your side was, rather than trying to remove the debate by coming up with a clever definition of cancel culture that meant it was only good things or only bad things. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with Joel on that. And I think that if you do end up getting stuck in a debate where teams can't agree on what the topic means, it probably means that you're not being generous or not taking a hard enough line. But sometimes it does happen, and I saw this happen a couple of times. It's really important if you do disagree with the opposition about what the topic means or what the topic's talking about, not just to say that they're wrong, but to explain why you think that the way that they've defined the topic is wrong, because there's nothing that an adjudicator can do with it if one team's saying cancel culture is this thing and the other team is like, no, cancel culture is something completely different, unless if you give us reasons to believe that your understanding of cancel culture is the more plausible and the more reasonable one. It's actually a good idea to talk about definitional challenges because we also saw it a bit in C grade with the topic that we support mandatory national service. I had a combination of teams telling me that national service could include uh, non-military service, but also teams telling me that there was no way it could be anything other than you marching in and goose-stepping around. It's really important for both teams to come up with a fair and generalised definition for the debate. That's what our rulebook, the Australia-Asia Debating Guide, 2nd edition, calls for when it talks about a definition. It's not about trying to make the debate easier for your team or harder for your team. It's about making it fair and having an open ground. And as Michael was saying, if you're going to challenge the definition, there are a couple of things you do need to do. One of those is what Michael was saying. Explain to me why your definition is better than the other side's definition. And that goes both for the negative team saying, actually, we think the definition is something else. But also that goes for the affirmative team then defending their definition. So if the affirmative team says that national service includes something like picking up rubbish along the side of the freeway, and the negative team says, no, it's just goose-stepping, and this is why we think it's important that it's only about military service, the affirmative team wants to come back on that and tell me exactly why they think a broader definition of national service is more fitting. But then you want to do something that is a bit difficult and why we really try to encourage you to not go into a definitional debate, which is called the even-if argument. Basically, you need to assume that your adjudicator isn't necessarily going to agree with you on the definition. And so you still need to argue all of your arguments under whatever definition the other side has brought. Going back to my example from before, the affirmative side says that we should have a broad definition of national service that includes picking up rubbish. The negative team should not just say, we don't think we should have national service that includes the military, but they also need to tell me why it's still unfair to have national service if it's just picking up rubbish on the side of the road. You need to do both of those because you shouldn't assume that your adjudicator is believing one side or the other. And that's what takes up so much time and why we don't want you to have these definitional debates. Another thing I noticed about the C-grade topic was that I noticed in general the teams that tended to win more often than not were ones that brought in examples. They would say, okay, well, here's South Korea they have mandatory national service, here's what that looks like. Whereas there were other teams that really only discussed the topic at a more, oh, you know, it might cost this much, or they might be able to, I don't know, plant trees for their service, da-da-da-da-da, and it didn't really look at how it played out. And I want to be very 
clear you don't need to have those examples of here's how another country must do it. I'm not saying you must structure your argument so that it must have this example in it, but it certainly did seem to make it easier for those teams to make their arguments more persuasive. The examples are always about showing me how this works in the real world, because it's not just about saying South Korea does it and then leaving your argument there. Oh, for sure. It's about saying, we think this is a good thing and we think it looks something like South Korea. And these are the things that we've seen in South Korea. We've seen more people getting involved with whatever local stuff, or we haven't seen that happening. And we've been seeing them, uh, people come up with really creative ways to get out of national service. And that's why we think it's a bad thing. There's lots of different ways to use your example, but Alexander's right. You need to bring in that example to take it out of an abstract concept that's just sort of about ideals and money. I would even say one of the problems is a lot of teams aren't really considering some real-world impacts. They're looking at some of the topics a little bit too philosophically. They are looking at things a little bit too much in the abstract of, do we agree with this You know, on an ethical level, rather than looking at some of the real-world consequences of how will this impact people's careers or how much will it cost? And using a real-world example for this topic was one of the ways that really forced the team's to look at that aspect of the debate and of the topic and go, ha, maybe there's an element to this that we could use to engage with the other team. And when there was a team that did and a team that didn't, it was really clear to me it caught the other team on the back foot. It's important to remember, though, that with examples, they're meant to supplement the argument you're making, not completely replace them. You're meant to build an argument and add in an example to help that become more obvious, as we were saying. In the regret the rise of cancel culture topic, sometimes I saw teams that had built their arguments around one or two examples. And so rather than saying to me, I'm going to show you why cancel culture is really effective, they'd just say, I'm going to tell you the story of this influencer. I'm going to tell you the story of David Dobrik. I'm going to tell you about J.K. Rowling. And that was their argument. Their argument was J.K. Rowling. That's not how we want you to build your arguments. We want to see you start with an idea. We think it's bad because this. Here's my example that I can use. I can take from somewhere else. I can look in the resource guide and find some examples, and I'm going to use that to back up my argument that I've already got. They're a finishing touch, a glacé cherry on the top of the cake. That's what we're looking for in examples. So they're important, but they shouldn't overtake the argument itself. In one of the debates I was adjudicating on the cancel culture topic, I got this example from one team where one of their arguments was basically JK Rowling getting cancelled and this Twitter mob rising up against her. And the way the opposition responded to that was basically by saying, hang on, look at her sales figures they went up, not down. That's not being cancelled. And I, as the adjudicator, have to weigh which of those two is more persuasive. And it really becomes a case of what I don't like seeing in debates, which is instead of focusing on the arguments, we're focusing on the examples, and it becomes what I term a war of examples, a la 
my example is more important than your example, because the opposition then went off to come up with their own counterexample of how some celebrity was wrongly accused of doing something that they didn't do and got subsequently cancelled and all of the detriments associated with that. And it just went back and forth like this for most of the debate. It wasn't effective persuasion. It didn't really address the underlying issues they were trying to discuss. And it really forces the audience to become the arbitrator of truth, which is not what you want to be doing. You do not want to be forcing your audience to say, make a judgment call, which team do you trust more to be telling you the truth? And it's something we're not allowed to weigh in on. I refer back to my favourite book, the AADG. We aren't allowed to bring in expert knowledge, outside knowledge. We just have a list of facts. And it's really hard for us to judge whether your statistic or their statistic is correct. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't as adjudicators be trying to make that judgment. Focus on your arguments and your reasoning and use the example to just show me that in real life. That's what we want. Okay, we're going to move on to the B-grade topic now. Uh, Our B-grade topic for round two was that the government should fund universal free childcare. And I saw this debate quite a few times, and there was one problem that popped up in it every debate, which was that often teams aren't making arguments that are specifically defending everything that they need to defend in this debate, particularly on the affirmative team. So almost every affirmative team I saw started this debate with, this is why it's important for like low SES or low socioeconomic status people to have access to childcare, which can be really, really persuasive in this debate. But only if you explain to me why universal free childcare is the best way to get there or the only way to get there. Because what almost every negative team immediately does is that they stand up and say, we don't want universal free childcare. We want to target funding to low SES people and like give them subsidized childcare. But there's no reason to give that like free childcare to everyone. And so this is a really generalizable lesson read every word of the topic and make sure that every argument you make specifically links back to like what you're defending in the debate. You need to go, okay, this is what we've got. This is the argument we've got. So you can explain why it's really important to have people having access to childcare if they can't afford it. But that argument isn't over until you've linked it back to your side of the debate because both sides can claim that they can give low SES people access to childcare. I did have one team which I thought did a good job, which started talking about gender equality and not so much that they were talking about gender equality that made their case good, but rather the way in which they approached it, I think really benefited their case. And this team was more persuasive overall because they weren't just resting on the same arguments that I was hearing again and again. And really looking back on it, I'm surprised that there weren't more teams that I saw that went for the gender equality argument. Now, they certainly weren't the only team that went for this other argument to broaden out the different arguments that they were using to address the topic, but they were the only team that treated it as an entire argument rather than just a throwaway line by one speaker of, oh, it also helps because gender equality and then not explain it. I think this is a good example of a real debate that demonstrates why it is definitely worth spreading out your arguments. And instead of focusing on just one type of idea or just one stakeholder, it's worth spreading your ideas out a bit and how this can help your case and putting the time to spend an even amount of time 
against all the different stakeholders or against all the different effects or however else you split your team up. Because while I heard the gender equality argument a few times, certainly not in every debate, that one debate stuck out to me because that was the team that gave it more weight compared to their other arguments, or I guess more importantly, compared to the teams that didn't give it as much weight, spending the time to explain it, how it would affect things like the gender pay gap. And that was a more effective use of their time rather than continuing on and on and on about socioeconomic statuses and how it will or won't improve uh, those that are on lower income bands. It's like what we were saying before. You really want to have that balance of your sort of practical arguments and your idealistic arguments. It's not that one type of argument is good and the other is bad or that one type of argument always wins debates and the other just shouldn't matter. You want to have some of your arguments be about general ideas and about stuff like ethics or something like gender equality, but you also want to match that in with a bit of economics or whatever else is relevant to the debate. It's not about just taking that one approach, as Alexander says, you want to vary out that material, have a couple of themes covered so it's not just one note. The final topic for round two was our degrade that animal testing should be banned. A big problem in this one was their inability to explain any science. I was going to say on this topic, one thing I noticed as a general theme amongst the degrade debates was a general lack of responsiveness. What I was noticing is that what was happening would be the affirmative team would take a very ethical response of, it is bad to do this, we shouldn't do this from an ethical point of view. And here are the scientific alternatives. You know, here's fake skin we can test on, here are simulations we can run alternatives. The negative team would take the approach of ethically we have to do this because we don't want to put dangerous pharmaceuticals or dangerous healthcare products in front of real live humans and cause real damage to actual people. But there wasn't much engagement between those two sides. There wasn't any discussion of here is is why this ethical argument is stronger than that ethical argument. And the other part of that is I did not hear even once any sort of meaningful crossover of here is why the ethically better for humans argument engages with the scientific argument, which is for a degrade team probably the more difficult response to have. But I think that would probably be one of the biggest, most obvious ways that a degrade team could easily stand out from the crowd is if they were agile enough to be able to respond to some of these responsive issues in their arguments and in their rebuttal as well. Yeah, and just building on that, I think that this was a debate where obviously manner is important in all of your debates, but particularly in a debate like this where you're trying to make really emotional claims that rely on people being empathetic sometimes, your manner is particularly important. Because particularly on the affirmative team where If you're making claims around this is so cruel to animals, imagine how awful it is for them. If you're delivering that content in monotone, there are no pauses, there are no variations in your volume. It's really hard for the adjudicator to feel that empathy. And then when the negative team is talking about here are all of the massive scientific advancements that we've got out of it, they probably are going to intuitively lean towards the negative team. So while both teams do need to focus on doing all of their good manner skills, gesturing, looking up, 
going at a good pace. When you're running arguments that rely on emotion, that's a time that you need to particularly think about your manner and how you can adjust the way you're speaking to make the adjudicator really empathise with what you're saying. It was really great to see the way that people were able to bring in research. It was actually quite complex scientific detail telling me about different cell structures and other things that I just don't understand. And that's what you've got to remember about your adjudicator. We don't have science degrees. We don't have, we're not allowed to bring in any sort of specialist knowledge, as I was saying before. I should say, if we do have a science degree, we have to ignore that extra knowledge and take on the persona of the average reasonable person. Basically, pretend as if we don't have that knowledge. Exactly. And there were some times where I was just completely out of my depth. I had no idea what DNA meant, why that was an important thing to consider. I was really interested and really glad to hear about it, but I needed it to be explained to me at a level that you could explain it to one of your friends, someone who isn't in the debate, who hasn't researched it. How would you explain this to a classmate? That's the sort of level you want to aim for because then you're going to make sure not only that I understand it as the adjudicator, but then your opposition understands it better and they're better able to have a more engaging debate. So bring me those examples, bring me that detail, but give it to me at a level I can understand, like you're talking to a classmate, like you're talking to someone who isn't quite sure, doesn't have the same background. You want to be able to explain it to them then you'll be able to explain it to us. And then your opposition can get more involved because they understand your arguments better and everyone has a better time. Round three is normally full of secret topics for most grades. But while we're talking about degrade topics, before we move into secret topics, I think we should uh, give the degraders a little bit of analysis of the round three topic that they did which was that public transport should be free. As a public transport user and a, a bit of a self-confessed public transport nerd, it was a bit hard to watch this debate sometimes when not one single train line or bus route or tram route was mentioned. We've talked a lot today about examples. This is almost the examples special, but it's really important to use those examples and not just make public transport theme like this concept that is up in the air. Public transport is something physical. It gets you from point A to point B. It takes you from Greensboro to Melbourne Central Station or from Cario Station to Lara Station. It does these specific things. It takes you to certain places and you want to bring those in because it does make your argument clearer. Now, I didn't take any points off teams for not knowing as much as I do about train lines. I don't expect you to be me or Alexander or someone else who's interested and involved in trains around Victoria. We don't require that, but it does really help to say to me, we want more people to get on a tram and go from Flinders Street to Camberwell or to go to Box Hill on the tram, or to go to wherever else it is near you that you can talk about. Because we have lots of public transport wherever you are. If you're in regional areas and you're talking about V-line services, if you're in just the outer metropolitan region and you've mostly got buses, you can talk about these examples. You don't have to talk about when you took the bus to work or you took the bus to school, but you can talk about people who are taking 
the 902 bus to get from Nutterwadding to Keysborough every day. Those are examples you can bring in easily and really do help me understand the topic more. I thought the arguments were some great ideas, but we need to ground them more in reality. I was going to say, while I don't think Joel would like to hear this from the point of view of a self-confessed train slash public transport nerd, most of the debates I saw about this were really focused on the economic arguments to the point of I even saw one debate with this topic where they presented a stakeholder-based split, but they only looked at the economic effects on that stakeholder. They didn't look at some of the other elements, although I think that would certainly be a bit of an outlier because there was diversity in the debates, but mostly it really came down to arguments about how much do people earn, how much does a car cost, and not just from the point of view of, you know, how much does yearly Mikey cost, but more so from the point of view of how much will the taxpayer have to pay to subsidise this, or how much does it cost to run a train network? Answer, quite a lot. So while that was very strong for the negative team, for the affirmative team talking about how it benefits individuals and then not addressing the idea of potentially increased tax rates when the negative team starts talking about the cost of running public transport. I think it highlights, again, what we were talking earlier about the diversity of the arguments you should be bringing to the table. And especially for the affirmative team here, there were a lot of touch-and-go issues. And by that I mean, oh, and by less cars on the road, it will be better for the environment. And by less cars on the road, there will be less traffic, so a faster commute. And these are all true. But then again, in the example special, of course, it's examples not backing that up. And especially with some of the teams talking from an economic point of view, oh, free public transport, it is actually free over here and over here. And they tried it on a trial in this city. Great. And talking about the cost of doing that as an example for, you know, one city or a whole part of a country. But then I didn't really get those real world examples on the effects of traffic or from an environmental scientist's analysis of the effects that had on the environment. And I think this was a really big missed opportunity. I felt like perhaps maybe there were a few people behind the scenes beating the drum of economic arguments, economic arguments. And sure, don't neglect the economic arguments, but they are not going to single-handedly win you your debate. Of course, with the obvious caveat, this is only in the degrade debates I saw. It might not necessarily represent all of them. If you talked a lot about some of the other issues, good job you. Okay, we're now going to move on to what everyone else is doing in round three, which is their secret and advice topics. And I'm going to start this off by having a discussion of what you're doing if you're in C grade, which is an advice topic, which this year meant that all of your debates were about education. What an advice topic is, is pretty much just that. We tell you the general theme that the topic will have, and then other than that, it functions exactly like a secret topic. You've just had a little bit of a chance to do some research at home beforehand and to have a little bit of a think. That being said, I think that lots of people misunderstand what we expect with that research. Just because you've had some time to think about the topic at home, we're not actually expecting you to be able to draw on data and things like that that you would have found in your research during the debate. 
you still have that one hour of preparation time. And technically, you would do fine in an advice topic if you did no research beforehand and you just came in and did that preparation. So what we really don't want to see in an advice topic is you going, ah, I've researched this stat. I need to find a way to make it relevant to the debate. Even if it's really not, you should still be trying to make sure that every single thing that you say is still really relevant. The advice topic is just there to help you, is there to give you a bit of peace of mind. You'll vaguely know what you're talking about before you go into your first preparation time. But we don't expect it to like add to the burden that you have. You don't need to come in with lots of specialist knowledge or anything like that. The topics are set at a level that you could approach them with no level of research. So Alexander, when you're in a secret topic prep room, how do you make sure that you've got a good range of diverse arguments? Well, there are a few different ways to come up with arguments for any given topic. And in a secret topic, as much as possible, you want to try and use all of these to make sure you've covered everything. One of the ways is a stakeholder-based approach. So sit down with your team and go, okay, here's the topic. Who will it affect? And look at all of the ways it will affect them. So let's take the topic that Australia should allow the advertising of prescription drugs. We can look at that and say, okay, who are we involving here? The obvious ones that stick out to me is the pharmaceutical companies. Who's actually doing the advertisements? The, another one would be the medical professionals. So the surgeons, the general practitioners, the people with a medical degree. Of course, when we're talking about the healthcare system, there's obviously the patients. And I'm going to include the patients themselves, their family, etc. in the same group here because there's no real difference uh, from the point of view of prescription drugs here. Another one that we might wish to consider might be the government. This will be the stakeholder that is responsible for things like paying for prescription drugs through the pharmaceutical benefits scheme and Medicare, as well as enforcing such bans. The government, of course, contains the body that is responsible for regulating pharmaceuticals to make sure that they are safe. So there might be an element of that in this debate topic, which we might want to consider. So already there are four stakeholders, which I could talk about. And in a general order of importance, there would be the pharmaceutical companies, the medical practitioners, the patients, and the government. Yeah, so building on that example, for example, we could look at something like the pharmaceutical companies. We could look at how this affects how much profit they make and how would that change their behaviour. Maybe they're going to now have to make drugs that there's a really high amount of demand for. And you could run that on either side of the debate. Maybe it's good that these companies are now focusing on things that the consumers really want. Maybe it's bad because it means that there's less incentive to make drugs for really rare diseases that less people have because now you have a different profit incentive there. And the way that you need to approach this and why it's really important to start all of your prep time is by having each of you individually have a little bit of a brainstorm about what you think the argument is about. And because everyone on your team is going to have different ideas and have a slightly different approach to the topic. Even if you're all talking about the pharmaceutical companies, you'll come up with different impacts or different reasons why things happen. And that's something that doesn't happen if you start talking about it as a team straight away, because often the biggest personality on the team will say, this is how we're going to like run this debate. And then everyone else's ideas fall away. So even if you're a lot more confident than your teammates, that's totally fine. Everyone should still be contributing their like own opinions that they've developed by themselves, because that will really help you come up with that broad range of arguments. Joel, do you have any tips to add for secret topics? I do have some really good tips to do with time management because you really have to be strict 
One of the most important things to remember is that you forfeit if you do not show up in your debate room five minutes after the debate is about to begin. So make sure you leave your preparation room before your hour is up so that you get to the classroom in time. It's really important that you get there on time because we don't want to have to cancel the debate because someone was 10 minutes late to the room because those are unfortunately the rules and that's just what we have to do. But it's also about making sure you focus on the most important thing, which is creating a case for your team. I've seen so many teams over the years get lost in the weeds by focusing on what the other side might talk about rather than working out their own case. For example, if we're talking about this pharmaceuticals topic about uh, prescription drugs being advertised, affirmative teams might sit there going, ah, the negative team is going to tell us about why these prescription drugs are dangerous. The negative team is going to tell us why advertising is always evil. How are we going to rebut these arguments? That might be really helpful, but it's only helpful if you have your own substantive case to begin with. You need your own reasons. You can't rely on just rebuttal in debating. You need to have both. So start by focusing, as Michael said, on some private brainstorming, then focusing just on building your case. And once you have a case, once you have things you're ready to defend, then you can start looking at what the other side might come up with. But even then, you don't want to spend much more than 10 minutes on that because spending too much time on that takes away from your ability to write your arguments, prepare your case, make sure you have something strong to say. You'll be able to come up with rebuttal as you go. You usually do in a debate. So have a little bit more faith in that. Make sure you come up with some strong arguments on your own and think about the other team much later. Keep strictly to focusing on your team for the start. And just building on that, it's really important that you're communicating with your team the whole time. Because one thing that a lot of teams do is that they divide up the titles of their arguments and say, the first speaker is going to do this, the second speaker is going to do this. And then they sit in silence, just writing their own speeches. Then when we get to the debate, the arguments that are coming out at the first speaker and second speaker are very, very similar, or the second speaker doesn't remember what the first speaker said, so they're unable to kind of bring elements of that argument back in their rebuttal. And it stops the case from being coherent. So even if you're focusing on writing your own speech, making sure that you're really communicating as a team the whole time. And so everyone who's going to be up there speaking knows exactly what every single speaker is going to be saying. On the topic of keeping to time and also going your own way to write your speeches, I think it's also worth mentioning that you should not be writing a speech out word for word ready to present because it's very clear to me when teams do this because I see someone that starts off reasonably persuasive and their sentences make sense and then about halfway through their speech they sort of just lose track of where they are and it becomes quite clear that they're not quite as confident speaking off the cuff which is what they are doing now. And this happens because there just isn't enough time to write out an entire speech at A and B grade in the time you have to prepare your debate topic, especially if you also then need to do your team's brainstorming, coming up with the arguments, splitting it out, working out who's going to be doing what, etc. So it is very important by the time you hit secret topics, you have to have some practice 
speaking off dot points and using your cue cards to prompt you not to tell you what every word you should be saying verbatim is. There just isn't enough time to write them and make effective use of your time and it's going to hurt you in the long run. So if you're not yet at the point where you can read off of dot points and you have that confidence practicing speaking off the cuff, it's something you need to start seriously working towards. Take some small steps, get some practice and start working towards it because if that is something that you cannot yet confidently do, that is the best way to improve your secret topic debating skills. So before we go, I want to thank all of the debaters, all of the students, all of the coaches, all of the parents, all of the teachers that do participate in our school's competition with yet another lockdown, throwing our plans into chaos and showing us how we must always be ready to adapt to changing situations. So whether your round threes were topics were done early enough that it wasn't a problem for you, or maybe then that made it a problem for your round four topics, whether it was delayed, postponed, or done online over Zoom or Teams or some other video conferencing software. Thank you very much for your patience in this very tumultuous time. Hopefully that's given you enough to ponder for your upcoming debates. We hope that there is something you can take away from this episode to improve your debating skills. Until next month, good luck with your upcoming debates. And if you have any questions that you'd like us to consider in a future episode of Points of Information, feel free to email publications at dav.com.au. We love receiving correspondence. Please just send us any questions you want us to consider. All right, then. Thank you for listening and catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.